Welcome to Deacon's Pod. I'm Deacon Dennis. Say hello to my co-conspirators, Paulus Affiliate Deacons. Hello, this is Deacon Drew. Hello, I'm Deacon Mark. Kaya Oaks, who was our first guest on the Deacon's Pod, had recommended to us the book An Infinity of Little Hours, which is a book about the Carthusians. And so that led us to today's guest, the author of that book, the full title of which is An Infinity of Little Hours, Five Young Men and Their Trial of Faith in the Western World's Most Austere Religious Order. Our guest is Nancy Klein McGuire. And I think one of the things we should address at the outset is what are the Carthusians? Yeah. Dennis, I think you're our resident expert on that. I don't know that about that, Mark. I'm sure you probably know as much about this as I do, but it's interesting. She says in the, is, that's in the title, isn't it, Mark? The most austere order. That's right. So again, what we're talking about is this is on the edge of out there for Catholic religious life. Most austere. I don't even know who's competing for that title anymore, but I don't think there's too many people that would argue the Carthusians are very serious and let's put it this way. Most monks that you normally think of that live in a monastery in a community would say, I wouldn't do that for anything. That's crazy. You know what I mean? That's how austere and severe this life is. And I'm sure there must be extreme personalities, I would think, because just to even be attracted to that instead of just running away from it like everybody else, including monks. Uh, I don't even think most people know very much about them, right? The only Carthusian foundation in North America is in my home state of Vermont. Right. And I grew up there and didn't even know about them, right? They have a monastery on the side of Mount Equinox. If, yeah, you, sure. if you had asked me about the Carthusians, I frankly, and I I'm, I'm shouldn't admit this, but I would have said I, they don't exist anymore, I don't think. They're from the 11th century France right. or something. But they yeah. do, though, right, guys? They do exist. Oh, yeah. They do they exist, do. but they don't advertise. <laughs> they don't put out. Go on the internet. Google the Carthusians. You'll find Wikipedia will tell you who they are or whatever. But you're not going to find the vocation director. They don't make it easy. They don't, you know, I mean, it's really. You can't uh, make retreats there no, unless yeah, you're it, a candidate. Yeah. yeah it is. They don't make it easy. And it's, I mean, they don't even tell you they're there. You know, I mean, it's, it's serious stuff. Well, when you say the most austere, Dennis, are there other orders of monks that are somewhat austere? Oh, yeah, you, sure. The, who you would know, you compare them it, to? Well, I think they're singular, but the way it would break down. Okay, first of all, let's, the people who don't know about this, they think that they see a Franciscan or a Dominican, they say, oh, look, a monk. You know, I mean, it's like they got a hood. That doesn't make them a monk. I got a hood. I'm just a guy with a hoodie. Right? Oh, I, I was schooled about this about a year ago. I referred to a Franciscan as a monk, and he told me he's not a monk. He's Correct. a friar. He's a friar, a brother. And the difference is what? Because they do look the same. The outfits look the same. But the Franciscans and Dominicans, they don't live behind a monastery wall. They're out. They run parishes. They run hospitals. They whatever. They just got that old Middle Age, medieval uh, garb on. 
but they are not monks. But the real the monks, like the Benedictines, would be the biggest group, and uh, there are other groups. The Carthusians are not Benedictines, by the way. But anyway, the, the Trappist are the Trappist monks. The Trappists are monks, and so Tom, yeah. So Thomas Merton was a monk, right? They yeah, are part Benedict of the Cistercians, which is a sort of offshoot right. of the Benedictines. Yeah, there are many Benedictine families, but they all follow the rule of Benedict, and they go back to that. And again, so you have three basic types of monks. Okay, you have cenobites, hermits, and recluses. Now, a cenobite means what you normally think of as a monk is someone, and this could be a woman, by the way. There are women monks. They are called nuns. Again, we do that too. We say, well, sister. Well, an apostolic sister, like the one who taught you in grade school or, or in, in running the hospital, is not technically a nun, even though we say that. She's a sister. Nuns are cloistered sisters. So anyway, so a lot of this stuff, just like you guys, people say, Oh, nice sermon, Father. They don't know whether you're a deacon or a priest. Most people, that's whatever, man. <laughs> yeah. One guy in prison came up to me once, and he walked up to me, and he says, excuse me. I said, yeah. He says, are you the Jesus man? <laughs> I stopped it. I, I thought, and I said, well, yes, I am. I guess I am the Jesus man. It was the nicest thing anybody called me. What can I do for you? But anyway, he didn't know a deacon from a priest, from a minister, from me. don't care. So anyways, the Cenobites, they're what you normally think of. They live in a monastery. There's a bunch of them, 50, 60, whatever there is in the community, and they farm like jelly or whatever. They support themselves. They work for a living, and they pray multiple times a day. They take little 20-minute prayer breaks and say the, the liturgy of the hours when they have mass, and they have free time, of course, and they pray and whatever. So that's your basic community of monks. It's not too much of this. It's not too much of that. Benedict's whole thing was, this is a school for beginners. He was, his whole thing was, I am not going to come up with a program here that's going to be too hard for anybody, but it's going to stretch you. It's going to make, you're going to get the benefit. So it's like a good coach. I'm not going to kill you so that you don't want to come back the next day and you can't move, but I am going to push you and build you up gradually. So those are the Cenobites. And in, within that, so say the Benedictines, a group of monks, you have in Mark's neighboring home state, in New Hampshire, for example, you have St. Anselm's College, which is run by a monastery of Benedictine monks. And as we get into the political season and New Hampshire is up, you will see people, politicians standing behind signs that say St. Anselm's, or there'll be surveys of who's voting for whom from St. Anselm. But so you have a monastery that includes a college. They run a college. This is not, I'm a hermit and I don't talk to anyone. They are professors, they are building maintenance, everything involved with the college, but they're still monks. Uh, and they still you know, go back six, seven times a day and say their office and do these other things. And then there are Cenobites like Merton on the Trappist, who they're just there to pray. It's a contemplative life. So there's a broad range of what monks do. They can really be, oh, you don't see anyone, or you're in the middle of it. There are, near you, Drew, in New Jersey, in Newark, you have a Benedictine monastery that's in the middle of the city of Newark, running I, schools. I was just with the president two days go. ago, and uh, he's a very well-known person of interest here in New Jersey because he does such a great job with that school. Right, and it's the middle of a poor area. These guys are on the front lines. 
and they're monks. So you see the range, and that's just the sentiments. And what that means is we live together in community, all right? Then you have the hermits. Now we're getting close to the Carthusians. And hermits just spend more time alone, and they live alone. But most of them, you have, well, not I shouldn't say most or many, but you have communities of monks who are hermits. So there is accountability, there is an abbot, there is a rule. You're not freelancing. Now, you can freelance. You can go and make vows to your diocesan uh, bishop and become a canonical hermit in the Catholic Church. Just you can do it right now because you don't have to be a priest to be a hermit. See, and again, that's the other thing. Monks don't have to be priests. It was essentially lay people when it started, and they have enough people that are priests there to take care of mass or whatever. It's not the job of a monk. It's got nothing to do with being a priest per se. So anyway, so you have the hermits, so they might spend more time alone, but you even have communities of hermits because it's easier to support yourself. So you might spend, say, the morning working together, and then you come together for your prayers, but the rest of the time, the afternoon and the evening, you're alone. You don't eat together, you don't, you get the time alone, which is the feature of that. And there are hermits like the Camaldolese who are who ha- are involved in interreligious dialogue around the world. They're very knowledgeable. They write books. They're, um, you know, the Camaldolese the Foundation in the United States is in Big Sur, California. And, of course, all around them, they've got Native American. They've got Buddhists. They've got, and they interact with Hindus. They act, interact with them. And, you know, that's part of their charism is, is that interfaith thing. So and you can actually like, go there, right, Dennis? You're oh, not, yeah. It's not oh, yeah. So you can isolated. retreat. Yeah. Yeah, you want to, I'll tell you what, I've taken retreats there. If you want to see something beautiful, go to the website contemplation.com. That's their mm. website. And take a look at the views. They're about 1,300 feet above the Pacific Ocean. And you can go there. And it is just, it's beautiful. So, yeah, so they have a little more latitude. So we haven't got to anything like the Carthusians yet. These guys are still, and the Camaldolese, they're interesting because they have all three types. So you can be a Camaldolese and be whatever kind of monk you want. So you can be in their monastery at Berkeley, California. They're running a school. They're involved in, in that, the theology school in Berkeley. I said, so they're hippies. Yeah. Yeah, hippie monks. So they got them. <laughs> And then they have the hermitage in Big Sur, which is what I described. You know, there's some contact, but you get a good bit of time alone. And then they have reclusion, which is what most people think of when they say hermit. And a recluse is someone that you see them once a couple months or whatever. They come down for supplies and then they go back. I mean, you really, they're, they don't even see the other monks unless they absolutely have to. And, of course, all this is based on, you know, you have to build yourself up to it. Usually, like, within the Camaldolese, you would maybe start out at the, as a Cenobite in, in the city and then doing your studies and stuff. And then you could go to the Hermitage, and then you might decide, this isn't for me. I'm going to go back to the Cenobium and be that kind of monk. And they're all like, cool, you do you, boo. This is what God's calling you to. And then maybe eventually you go back to the Hermitage, and then eventually— you say, you know, I really want to be a recluse. But, you know, you got to earn it. They don't just stick some kid up there and say, well, good luck. Don't go crazy. You know, they, they've done this for a thousand years. They know how to do it. But within the Camaldolese, you have every kind of monk possible. 
which I thought was interesting. I didn't know because most of them, it's like, well, if you're here, we're Cenobites. You can't be a hermit and be part of this order. You had to leave and join in Hermetical, which is a hermit order. So they're different that way. So here's a question for both of you then. Fascinating, fascinating. And uh, sometimes I wish that I had more time to spend visiting these people to the extent they allow visitors to come in. But in this world today, which is so fraught with issues and problems, whether you want to be involved in those problems or not, what is the value of these closed, I'm going to call them closed, and you correct me, please, closed societies? What value do they bring to us as a church and a world that needs our leadership? Could I take a stab at that? Absolutely. Yeah, my uh, stab them good. <laughs> I had this that that very question came up when I think when Nancy Klein McGuire's book came out, and I was talking to my dad about it, and it was not long before he died himself, and I was explaining to him what the life of the Carthusians was like, and he said, "Well, what good is that? What good are they doing, people?" And they as Dennis pointed out they don't teach, they don't have outreach. They are in Vermont and on the side of a mountain. You can drive on a road that that uh, goes up and around and over the monastery, but you can't get anywhere close to it. So what do they do? Well, they their lives are lives of prayer. They pray for all of us. And so I think it comes down to the idea that if we believe as Catholics that prayer is meaningful, that in a world where we have so many challenges, warfare and poverty and disunity, climate change, change, all of these things that face us, and there are many practical things that we can do to address those problems, but we also have to believe that as Christians, one of our most powerful tools in dealing with problems like this is to pray that they serve as a community of people who espouse that very idea that prayer is that powerful tool that we use to address those very problems. And so I think for them, they are a witness for the rest of us in our very busy lives where prayer can sometimes be crowded out by the pressing exigencies of the day. And here you have people who that's all they do is they pray. That's how I would look at it. Yeah, you're right. And it's the witness, though, I would take it even a step further. It's not just they're an example to us. But they build an entire life around this. You know, it's not like, oh, I got one more damn thing to do. Okay, let me, I got to say my prayers. Yeah, I got yeah. the dishes. And I got, no, they're saying, this is the one thing necessary. Martha, Martha, you are worried about so many things. Only one thing is necessary. They're saying, and they're showing, they're not just saying, this is not some guy talking. I've been on that mountain. You ain't got to, Mark. I've been there for 50 years and I'm happy. And if you ever do meet these people, and by the way, except for the Carthusians, you can meet all these people. No one's as close as they are. That's why they're the most austere, extreme 
You can take retreats at a Trappist monastery. You can take, you can take retreats at the Camaldolese. You can meet the Camaldolese at a interfaith meeting. They're not that, that closed. So they are involved in the problems and certainly interfaith meetings, half the world is killing each other over religion. So the more you can bring the religious leaders and people together not to hate each other, I think that's a definite benefit. But the prayer, the witness is they're saying, this is that important. This is not a nice extra. And really, most of us don't live like God is the most important thing I'm going to deal with today is God. Those are saints that get up in the morning and say, that's it. I'll do the other stuff as I can. See, the monks, yeah, one of the, yeah. things with the monks, the difference between the monks and the other religious orders is, and people can meditate and chew on this as they will, but this is a fact. The other orders have stuff to do. You're a Jesuit. I got to run this university. I got to go to the missions. I got to do this. I got to do that. They're doing different things. And then they think the prayer in around it. The monks say, okay, here's the seven, eight times a day for maybe three hours, four hours altogether, whatever it comes out to. I never did the math. This is when we're praying. And then we work around that. We're going to spend they, they maybe do manual labor, say they're farmers or something. Well, they may work three, four hours, and that's it, because they're going to have time for prayer. They're not trying to get rich. We're just trying to feed ourselves. So they have built a life centered around this thing, and it's a challenge to the rest of us to say, well, what am I missing? That this is, there, There's got to be something there. If you can be happy making a life, and this is the main thing for you. Yeah. So, yeah. And the only ones that are closed, just let me emphasize, that are really closed, are the Carthusians. The rest of them, you can go, if you go to a monastery, anybody can go into any church. The church is always public space. You drive up to a monastery, you walk into church. I was in, uh, where was I? Arizona. And there is a Benedictine monastery there. And it was a hoot because they support themselves by running a KOA campground. So you got this campground here. And and right over here is the monastery. And all these people are coming in who don't even know what a Catholic is, never mind a monk. And they just, I just picked this KOA because I was on vacation in Arizona. And next thing you know, you got a problem with something and you're talking to a monk. So it's really, it's a, this is some unique evangelization. I mean, you're talking to people. But anyways, we pull in there and I, my wife and I said, well, let's go check it out. And she said, well, you can't go in there. You can't, you know, this is why I'm telling you the story. Oh, you can't. I mean, she knows that much about monks. I said, I'm not going to their living room. Anybody can go into church. So I go in, I open the door. They're just finishing up mass. They finish mass. They come out. It wasn't a large group of people because it was daily mass. And when the, the celebrant standing by the door, just like at your parish, priest shaking hands and everything like that. Oh, he's the abbot. He's running the place. He's, oh, hi, where are you from? So I introduce myself. And he's talking, and I hear the Massachusetts accent. So I say, I say, I start playing, who do you know that I know? Well, we know 15 people in common, as it turns out. Next thing, we're having lunch. We're, it was just a trip when we're with these monks. And my wife was like, you can't go in there. And I keep telling her, I know the secret handshake. I'm getting it. <laughs> yeah. I, I had a, a, sim, a somewhat similar experience. There is a, ben, a Benedictine monastery uh, up in um, North Jersey. Not, you, you mentioned the one in Newark, the right in the middle of Newark, but there's a monastery up in, uh, in Sussex County, New Jersey. And I used to take the drive up there when I worked out closer to it to go for a noontime prayer. 
and sit with the monks and they'd chant the prayer and I'd not chant the prayer. I'd just say the prayer. And then they would always invite me for lunch afterwards. They said, oh, come on in. Now we're going to have lunch. So they were, again, open, more open, but still living there. And when I drive in, sometimes I'd see a couple of them out in the fields doing the farm work, the vegetable patch work. So very interesting. I, so, I too. Yeah, I do my annual retreat at a Trappist monastery, Holy Cross Abbey, right on the Shenandoah River. Yes, Berryville. Yeah. Right on the Shenandoah River. Yeah. And, uh, it's really a special opportunity to join with a small community of Trappist monks and pray. And the silence, I think, is the, it's the real benefit of that. Yeah. You're just not Beautiful. talking. One other thing uh, for our listeners that you may or may not know is that, you know, if in any way you've ever thought about the monastic life or anything or been interested, they all have lay members. They all have oblates. You can go to, if you have a local monastery, and True has a couple, and he's in basically in New York City on the New Jersey side, but he's right there in the metropolitan area, and Mark's down in D.C. So these people are not in Colorado that you're listening to. They got, you probably got a monastery around you. You can go there, and, and they have a special relationship where they will teach you how they pray, how they work, what they do, blah, blah, blah. And you can, you know, and there's a lot of people that use monastic practices that work for a living, have children, whatever, but they'll do the meditation and the prayers and stuff. But if you go to any one of their websites, and again, monasteries have websites now, and you put it in there, you can probably find something. You know, and they have retreats, special retreats and classes and stuff and uh, spiritual direction. So there's a lot of benefits to uh, being an oblate of one or another of the monasteries. So you might might be interested in that if you want to explore this a little further. And if you're interested in exploring more about the Carthusians, I really recommend as a movie guy to see the movie Integrate Silence. It's a long film. It's about three hours. And you could probably fit the entire dialogue of that three-hour movie on one page. There's yeah, no one box. talks for three hours. It's a lot of silence. It's a lot of silence, but you certainly get an idea of what the life of a monk in the Carthusian order is like. It's, it was filmed at uh, the Grand Chartreuse, the original charter house in France. That's where they make the liqueur, that green uh, liqueur chartreuse. Um, yeah, not and, a fan of that, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but a great story about this German filmmaker who asked to go into this place that's sealed off from the rest of the world to, to make this movie, and he didn't get a response until 16 years later <laughs> with a letter saying, okay. <laughs> and But it's just a beautifully filmed movie. And if you're willing to just sit and, and watch monks at prayer in this very silent environment, this charter house is located right in the mountains, the Alps. It's just stunning location. It's a beautiful film to watch and get a sense of what that life is like. So this is Mark's idea of a good time. So now we know he's a weirdo. <laughs> I was watching three hours of a silent movie. That's not Charlie Chaplin. This is just guys walking around the monastery. I watched it too, in all seriousness. And my thing, as the father of many daughters, uh, there was a lot of talking in my house. 
it's just my your ears bleed it's just yammer and talk and whatever and uh, when they were smaller and uh, say maybe around high school age and they would come home after a swim or something and my wife who was a nurse would probably was at work or something i'm trying to recall the scenario but I used to frequently joke about that, said, I'm going to the monastery. I can't handle you girls anymore. You know, I'm, I'm going to be a hermit. I'm going to make, I'm going to make honey with the bees. Just me and the bees was a, a regular joke. And they'd come in. And one day they came in. I wasn't thinking of it. And I was watching into great silence. And they went mental. They went crazy. They walked, he's watching that movie. Jeez, dad. But it's like, they could not believe that I'm sitting there with a smile on my face that you can't wipe off, just listening to the silence and walk, watching these guys walk around and do their thing and just quiet. Oh my God, I can push. So, so I, I've watched it a couple of times too. And it's, it's very interesting, but you'll see how extreme the Carthusians are. And it's that, worth that's it, not every monastery. That's not it, every monastery. If you're in the Eastern part of the U S the Northeastern part in particular, it's worth, Taking a drive up to near Manchester, Vermont, the Carthusians actually have a little shop at the base of the mountain. It's a toll house because the toll road that goes, that winds up to the top of Mount Equinox is owned by the monastery. You won't find any of the monks in that toll house. They hire lay people to staff it, but you can buy little monk figurines. And things like that, even some Catholic books in the gift shop at the base. And then... Go ahead. I'm sorry. I was going to say, well, that's something. Both of of you have told us you can't get in there. You can't see them. They won't let you in. And you're now advising the listeners to drive (laughs) up there anyway and have them snub their nose at you. That's right. You won't get anywhere. Stay out. You won't get anywhere close (laughs) to the monastery. But you can drive up the toll road to the top of the mountain. On the way up, you can see from a great distance the monastery, which is made out of Vermont granite, huge chunks of granite. Uh, so, that, okay. Uh, to, Let me see the, if I can convince my wife to drive all the way up to Massachusetts so we can, or to Vermont so we can drive up at least close enough to see it at the top of the mountain. At the top. Why, of, and you, you go can to Google the, it, by the way. And you go to yeah. the top, there is a display on the life of the Carthusians in the mountaintop seating area. But it's a beautiful drive. It's worth it going to Vermont anyway. <laughs> Buy a lot of maple syrup and... Uh, in the fall foliage. See, that's the time the for that. Trip. That's the go time when, to go. When the leaves Absolutely. Turn. Yeah. yeah. It is beautiful up there. But you can see it on the internet, too. It's Transfiguration, isn't it, Mark? Transfiguration? That's right. The Charter House of the Transfiguration. There you go. Google that. And it's everything you didn't want to know about monks. I don't think we have any <laughs> listeners left whatsoever. Well, they, I hope they're listening because now they'll, we can let them understand exactly the background and all that about the book by Nancy Blind McGuire. <laughs> Well, hello. Today we have Dr. Nancy Klein McGuire, who's a scholar of 17th century theater and politics and has been closely associated with the Folger Shakespeare Library in Washington, D.C. for over four decades. And she's done some other very interesting things. In the 1990s, she established and managed a land trust that saved North Carolina's Cape Fear from development. In 2006, 
She published a beautifully written book titled An Infinity of Little Hours, Five Young Men and Their Trial of Faith in the Western World's Most Austere Religious Order, a book about the Carthusians, which is not only an austere religious order, but one that I think many people know very little about. And she married a former monk and poignantly wrote about her relationship with him in his final days in The Monk's Widow, a memoir of a resilient love and intimate death. Welcome, Nancy Klein-McGuire. Thank you very much. We're glad to have you with us. So, you know, I think a lot of what we want to talk about today begins with this book that you wrote about the Carthusians. And it's a book that I rarely read books more than once. And this was a book that I enjoyed reading at least twice. And I know it comes up many times in books of best Catholic books, whatever that means, but it comes up often as a favorite. But it's on a topic that I think most people know very little about. Could you tell us a little bit about your topic and how you came about writing that book? It was very specific. I never believe I decided to write something, but I was deep in the execution of Charles I. And I went to a conference where for five days we were paid to sit and talk about Charles I. And it was just too much. Went to a, the dinner and the host kept talking about a seminar. He was at the Trappist seminar. He started talking about things like the four hours of the divine office and that type of thing. And I said, I said Arthur, you're wrong. And he said, well, how would you know? And I said, I'm married to a Catholic monk who does, lives on bread and water or whatever. And I had the whole audience. These are academics. I had the whole audience listening to me. And I thought, if I can get their attention, this, this thing has legs. And I went after it. But it's so positive. It's still going, which is amazing. And I was writing out, I thought I'd sell five copies. Because everybody that talks is, you know, who would read a book about monks? But just last week, I got a letter, again, thanking me for writing it. Couldn't have been done without the help of the monks, which is unusual because they're so reclusive and they don't talk to anyone. And getting in is a sheer act of magic because women are not allowed inside. David, his name is Cyril. He died last July. They were, in, they were the five young men. They were together. So David got the name of the head of the order, and it happened to be this person. So I sent him. I worked for weeks trying to put the letter exactly and get me in. I threatened all kinds of things to sue them, et cetera. But I just sent a fax, and I got an answer that's saying, if you are very discreet and the monks don't object, you can come in for professional reasons. I said I needed to use the library. And then I, I was in collecting details. You said David knew. And then David, of course, let's back up a little bit. David, I'm sorry, was my, your my husband, David, was a Carthusian. He's one right. of the fine young men. One of the things that fascinates me about this book is deacons, as you probably are aware, permanent I deacons, do. like we can be married. We can be married. But a lot of uh, Catholics who go to Mass every Sunday don't really have any idea that's true unless they know us personally. So when I meet somebody out and I say, I'm a deacon, and they say, aren't you married? And I'm like, yeah. What, what I'm getting at is your book was so surprising to me that you were married to a Carthusian monk. I, you know, it yes. took me by surprise. So it must take everybody by surprise. 
Can you give us a little background history on how you met him? And because there's a story behind that too. We are all aware of that who have read your books. Yes. Well, I was okay. I left the convent, went to Marquette University, had the Jesuits, you know, strong Jesuits, a teaching appointment at Loyola University. And there was just one other woman in the department. Remember, they, there weren't any women in the school practically. So mm-hmm. she came up to me one day and said, my nephew just left the Kaisenian order and he wants, he, he had left and he wants you to invite his friend Dave to take, he wanted him to take her out to dinner. So it was a 12 hour teaching day, nine o'clock at night. And my wore heels because I am so short. So I'm, all I wanted to do was go home and put my feet in a bug of hot water. But she said, would you come and have coffee with this man? And I said, sure, you know, having coffee is no big deal. But instead of, she walked him to my door, knocked on the door and said, um, Nancy, here's Dave, have fun, you two. And that was it. <laughs> my first blind date. <laughs> and uh, we first didn't go blind date and turned, For your first blind date turned into your husband. He was no longer a monk at that time, right? I mean, maybe no, no. once a month old. He had been down yeah. 12 months. From Thanksgiving to after Christmas. So was he a Carthusian monk? Like all of them, if they leave, they're going to leave at 4.5 years, within months before final profession. Okay, I see. And I see. And of the five of them, only one um, stayed, and he's the one who died last July, and he's the one who opens a book. If there's okay. a God, this makes it, well, he, was, he enabled the book. I couldn't have written it if he hadn't given me access. Right, right. He was a prior of the order. And for how long did you have access? How long did it take to write that book? I should I ask the question that way. I started in 1999, went to Parkminster, got in, and got in not only to the library, but to any, all over the whole inside, which is illegal and unbelievable. And I was busy with my four tape recorders and camera. The monks never knew I was there. The monks in their cells never knew I was there. Okay. But I had 20 hours of conversation with both the prior and the novice master. It sounds like a lot of those former Carthusians found it very difficult, actually, to let go of that life that they had led. Oh, what's, I think, relevant here is that they're really hard to find. I had one that I had known who came here. I'm in, my, in the mountains. And we invited them here for a weekend. So I had him. But then it was just finding one from another. And it was like an incredible, you know, so FBI team. And they would be so excited when I'd find another one. And then they would meet, and that one would lead me to another one. But it was just so amazing that none of them ever talked to each other during the whole time from published in 2006. I started writing in 1999. They only talked to me. They didn't talk to each other. And I think it has something. I think I would have to be a woman for them to talk to me. And they are so deep into the Blessed Virgin. I mean, extraordinarily. I don't know. The bonding was with me more so than with each of them. And I would write these letters. It was just a boilerplate letter. You know, I'm I'm doing research. I published in these places. I send them out thinking they won't answer. 
One of them answered. He got the letter in England. He called me immediately from London. Immediately. Another one that the, my collection of monks, of ex-monks, they couldn't figure out why he hadn't written. This is burning. And he hadn't responded. And everybody's thinking, why didn't he respond? Then I get a letter from him, 40 pages. Huh. They meet, see, there was no one they could talk to that understood their language. I, my communications were full of spatiamentum. I mean, I had all the Latin under control, and they needed to talk. It was that simple. They were desperate to talk, and they finally found someone who would listen. Yeah. And he said it was like a huge project. I love this this story about how they won't talk to each or don't talk to. I shouldn't say won't, but don't talk to each other. They hadn't. Finally, you 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 got their trust because about five years ago, and I have it in my hand because I've always kept it. I received a birthday card from my sister in law, and on the front of the card, you can't see this, but it, it has a, a group of monks, and it says the silent monks of the Carthusian monastery would like to wish you a happy birthday, and when you open the card. It's blank. There's nothing <laughs> because they don't talk. It's one of my favorite all-time birthday cards. But So that's fascinating. So you got their trust, but they didn't have each other's trust, uh, well, if I can understand. Well, no, I think it's more to their young people together for all that time, but they can never talk to each other. Right. right. So why would they start talking afterwards? I, I think, well, the trust is because they knew I would listen. And I wouldn't judge them. But it's remarkable. I, I, think, I don't know that people realize how remarkable that relationship you developed with these monks is because they're, that is such a, an enclosed space. That's right. I mean, people think of the Trappists as being a, an order that doesn't communicate with the outside world much, but this goes far beyond talk, the Trappists. <laughs> they talk once, so it's not that they develop close ties. In fact, when I was tracking them down, I tracked out Romeo, and he was in London. So I met him for lunch. David was with me, and both of them swore they had never seen each other, and they were they had they were together on the walks, and that's wow. much. That's as much as they. The only contact they have with each other is on the walks. Your so. book is often compared with the movie Integrate Silence, right? You get that ability to penetrate into the life of the Carthusians. Yeah. You know, that, that movie gave us a glimpse, but you were able to do that with words. And I did, what's amazing is the very fact that I was let in you know, to do this, and it wouldn't have happened in France, it happened in England, um, was when I got to the Exmos, you know, and it took a really long time to find some of them. One of them jumped over the wall the night his father died. And I thought, this is great because he'll be saying terrible things about the order. And he didn't. He just said, I can't believe you're writing about the about changes in the Carthusians because they can't change. And he was very upset when I said they now have showers in themselves. He said, he was just terribly <laughs> upset. I couldn't, one of them, I couldn't tell them anything because they were so distraught to think that the order had just gone to hell. But, but it was, I think it, the book was written by all of them. Well, I wrote it, but I mean, the information came from all over the place, but a lot of it from excursions, even ones not in the You say something at the end of your book, The Monk's Widow, about your own journey that I thought you were, you put it out there, but you didn't explore it further. And that was 
You said, I continue to struggle with the mystery of God, the mystery of my life and death with David. I'm still trying to find my own way to God without David. And the pandemic, because this was written during the pandemic, makes this even more difficult. Right. What I do is I'm in the mountains. I have my trees. I look at every day. You know, I write. And when I can't write any longer, I'm so exhausted. I look out the window and I get energy from, it sounds like I'm Buddhist or something. I get energy from my trees. That's the kind of meditation. And I guess I do the Carthusian thing. So in a way, your husband continues to live with you in that respect. Yeah, that's why I'm here in the middle of nowhere. And you're living a kind of, you're living a contemplative life is what you're doing. I am. You know, I think many of us who have gone through the experience of having a close family member die can really feel for what you experienced as your as David died over a period of a couple of years. And you express so well that sense of um, frustration, the waiting, the pain, exhaustion. the exhaustion. Yes, exactly. What I didn't put in the book, but I learned that I didn't know, death is unbelievably boring. Dying is totally boring. Maybe wow. a day of it would be boring, but 26 months of dying, there's nothing to plan for. There's nothing to... I wrote the book, I had in mind widows, because I didn't want widows to feel as alone as I did, because people don't like to talk to people who are... I mean, people are dying constantly around us, we have to learn to be better at accepting grief and knowing how to talk to people that are dying and talking to their spouses and children. It's a huge flaw in America. That's not true in European countries. European countries, people go to, they move towards someone grieving. They don't walk away from them. Americans walk away from people who are grieving. The, the monk's widow, I think, really captured the experiences, a lot of the experiences that I've seen in families as they're dealing with death and dying. So certainly encourage people to find that book and to read it. It's not easy, some of those hard uh, sections. Yeah. Very hard read. But people who do, some people read it and say, wow, that was exciting. I couldn't put it down. They didn't get it. That was failure, number one, total failure. And other people read it and they're so upset. They will call me and say, I can't finish it. I can't finish it. It makes me think, what if my wife, what if I died? What would my life be? You know, it's those who really are glad they read it. One, one person read it four times. It's certainly not a bit. I'm very grateful to you, Mark, that you picked it out. Um, Absolutely. And I think a lot of people do find that, that the book helps them process their own experiences. It's, as Drew was saying, and Dennis, it's not an easy topic and something we tend to avoid in our society. So thank you for writing that. Thank you for reading it. Thank you for talking about it. Thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you. For having this conversation. Okay. Take care. Thank you. Special thanks to El Jefe Paul Snatchko and our editor, David Dalt. The Deacon's Pod is powered by the Paulus Fathers. You can find us anywhere you get your podcasts and, of course, at our own website, 
www.deaconspod.com. That's D-E-A-C-O-N-S with an S, Deacons, plural, pod, all one word, dot com. And of course, we'd love to hear your comments at our email address, which is deaconspod, again, with an S, deacons, at paulist.org. That's P-A-U-L-I-S-T dot org. Love to hear from you. That's our offering. We thank you for being with us. On behalf of our colleagues at the Missionary Society of St. Paul the Apostle, we wish you a future brighter than any past. Till next time.